I'm such a geek now. I don't like to do anything without podcasting it. So uh, I'll probably tape this and post it. Uh, what I'm going to talk about, it's fun to be here at Fresno State. I was here about 10 years ago, but um, I don't think I've met anybody who remembers that. Uh, it's a short institutional memory. Uh, and the stuff I'm going to talk about today has to do with... Uh, the topic is what I call gnarly computation. And gnarly, uh, originally I might mention, I started as a mathematician, as Mike kind of hinted at. I was a math professor and I came to San Jose State. And they had a combined department of math and computer science. And this was about uh, 20 years ago. And then I started teaching computer science and got very interested in that. But I always kind of came at it from a mathematicians way of looking at things uh, there's some some things are sort of in common between mathematics and computer science and that is that uh, in mathematics we start with axioms or observations and then we try to deduce things or draw conclusions from them and uh, in computer science you're often working with a program and then you're letting it run and seeing what comes out of it. So there's a little bit of a similarity between a computer program and a formal theory. Now, um, some theories generate interesting things and some don't. And that's one of the things I'm going to be getting at today. And the, the computations that I consider interesting are what I call the gnarly ones. And gnarly is the word I started using when I moved to California. I heard some surfers using it. And I thought that was a good word. Um, now, the talk I'm giving today relates to a book that I published last fall. I taught computer science for 20 years at San Jose State. And I also worked for a graphics company for a few years, uh, Autodesk and Sausalito. And I wrote a, a bunch of programs. You can get... I have some sort of nice uh, mathematically oriented programs you can download for free from my website, rudyrucker.com. And uh, I kind of rolled everything I knew about this into this, this fat book. And it has a long, and the first thing I'm going to do in just a minute, I'm going to explain the title. The title is The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. And the subtitle is What Gnarly Computation Taught Me About Ultimate Reality, The Meaning of Life, and how to be happy. And uh, I won't hold out on you. At the very end today, I'll tell you how to be happy. Uh, now, the book title, when I say explain it, it's uh, what I call a dialectic triad to be sort of you know, high-flown and philosophical. And probably most of us would have heard of this idea of a dialectic triad. You have a thesis, an antithesis, and then the synthesis is the thing that sort of resolves the tension between the opposing things. And these three phrases, uh, there's a thesis, the life box, and I'll explain exactly what I mean by that in just a second, and opposed to that is the notion of the soul, and for, for a certain reason, there's a, the notion of a seashell mediates between that. Now, what do I mean by that exactly? Well, um, here's a picture of it, first of all, before I, I give you a little more. And this sort of begins to show what I'm getting at. When I say life box, this is a word, um, as Mike mentioned, 
one of the other things I do is write science fiction. And I've always been interested in this idea of what I call a life box. And this would be a device similar to a cell phone, but it would be more like a, a blog. It would ask you questions. You would answer the questions. You could put in pictures into it. You could put little video clips into it. You could tell it all your stories. And then it would have some nice access software. So then you could leave it. You could die. You could leave it for your grandchildren. And they could talk to this little life box thing. They could ask it questions. It could do voice recognition. You know, Grandpa, what kind of car did you have in high school? And then it would answer. And, uh, and this is all, this is really not at all far out. It's, it's something I would imagine they would be making these things certainly within 10 years, probably sooner. Uh, already, in a way, a blog is sort of a life box. It's kind of a model of you because most blogs will have search engines and you can search within the blog for the things that you've talked about. Now, the one thing sort of lacking in the real life box is creative thought. At present, we can make, I can make a big database that has all the things I know and I can you know, do access on it according to topics. I can sort of Google into it. But uh, it's not going to sit down and write my next novel for me. But uh, there's this sort of dream, in this artificial intelligence dream, that maybe that is not utterly out of the question. And so when I say life box, what I'm encompassing in there is this idea that I could make some sort of digital database and then have some you know, fairly good, sort of similar to theorem-proving software, things that would be deducing things out of it. And this thing might behave in some ways like a person. So it's the sort of robot model of a person. Now, opposed to that, the antithesis is the feeling, well, look, I'm alive. I have a soul. I'm me. I'm not just some smart cell phone. I'm not a computer. The, the idea is this digital stuff, it's, it's just this fad that humanity's fallen into, and really, that's not at all what it, it's like to be a living human being. And I'm sympathetic with both views. I mean, that's why I'm kind of writing this book. I'm trying to see there's this one way of looking at things. There's this other way of looking at things. These, they're really opposed to each other. You've got a thesis and antithesis. And there's a tension. It, it bothers me. What, what can we do to resolve this? And one way to consider resolving it, the synthesis, is to say, well, Maybe it's the case that we are computations, but maybe it's the case that computations are not as dead and lifeless as we've been led to believe. Maybe it's possible to have computations that are very vivid. And uh, the seashell I'm going to keep talking about, I think I brought one with me. Yeah, I can pass this around. Uh, Stephen Wolfram first got me interested in these seashells. They're uh, called cone shells, and they live in... Uh, the South Pacific, they're very nasty creatures. They have stingers, and they uh, they eat fish. They, they shoot at the stinger, and they poison the fish and pull them in and swallow them up. But the reason I'm interested in them is their shell. And you can't see that so well in the picture. So I'll move on, and I'll get become more clear what I mean by that. So again, thesis, uh, there's this phrase uh, th that... I, I use the phrase universal automatism. There, there wasn't an exact phrase that summarized this idea. It's the idea that everything is a computation. Now, 
a couple of caveats. What do I mean by computation? Well, I'm going to be general. In other words, I'm not going to say everything's a computation as if I'm a schizophrenic who thinks that there's some big gray computer that's hiding in the background and that's beaming my thoughts to me. Okay, it's not like that. I want to say that just the way the air currents is a type of computation or the way that an acorn grows into an oak tree is a type of computation or the way that ideas emerge in society. I think we can profitably think of these things as being computations, but not necessarily even digital computations. We can imagine computations based on more analog processes. So if I want to say everything is a computation or that the world is made of computations, I have to make computation a very kind of broad idea. So I'm going to say it's simply a process that obeys finitely describable rules. And uh, I'll leave it at that for now. So rule-like behavior. And so one of the essences of that is that it's deterministic. In other words, if you can bring something into a particular state and subject it to this rule-like process, then the same sequence of things will always happen. So that's this reproducibility, this deterministic idea. Now, uh, when I say everything is a computation, I'm, as I say, I'm not necessarily saying there's one master computation that underlies it all. It's actually Wolfram thinks there is one. Uh, and I'm, I refer to Wolfram, and you may or may not have heard of this man. His name is Stephen Wolfram. And he, uh, he wrote a popular book, or at least a, a well-known book, called A New Kind of Science. And as I was telling Mike before the talk, I first met Wolfram in the early 80s. And uh, he very much influenced the way that I think. And uh, Wolfram is somewhat unpopular among mathematicians. Uh, he's a very sort of iconoclastic person. And he'll say things like, I don't know. He'll, he'll just, he's good at saying that other people's life work is worthless. <laughs> and, and, uh, so he's, he doesn't make friends. Uh, and another thing that makes him doubly annoying is he's very wealthy because he wrote this software called Mathematica, which is you know, extremely good software. And if, you, if, you do, if you're a mathematician, it's very nice to have Mathematica. There are people who say, oh, let's use MATLAB because they don't like Wolfram. But they're really, that's, in my opinion, that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. Mathematica is really, it just kicks, it kicks butt. But uh, be that as it may. But anyway, so that's a little about Wolfram. Anyway, I wrote one of the few favorable reviews of Wolfram's book in the American Mathematical Monthly. But uh, whatever. So anyway, but anyway, as I was saying, the Wolfram thinks there is one single computation, but uh, I don't think there necessarily is one. The word, it might just be sort of one of these receding levels. There's lots of different levels of computations. Now, the, the hard thing, of course, when we say everything is a computation, is to say the human mind is a computation. Because there we get prickly about that. We don't want to say that we're mere computers. That, that puts you into the, the thesis-antithesis situation. Now, um, one of the things that, the way I organized the book, I actually had a chapter on each field, like looking at computer science, physics, biology, psychology, sociology, and philosophy, and in each field trying to say, can we view all of this as a computation? So I won't go into that, but the, the book has six chapters for that reason. Now, the antithesis, the idea that the problem is life doesn't feel like a computation, dreams, there's just this core feeling we have of being conscious. Um, 
There's one classic quote in the Bible that I always thought was interesting. Moses, I think Moses sees a burning bush and he asks God his name, and God says, I am. And that's sort of a, a strange thing to say that your name is I am. And, uh, but it's also interesting if you look at the core feeling of being yourself, you know, if you strip everything away, I am, I am me, but then I say that, you say that, and so there's this funny kind of common core that we have. There's this, this sort of inner light, and what is that? But then you say, well, maybe that light is everywhere. Maybe it could be inside a computer, too. So it's not, it's not totally a slam dunk. And uh, so there's these various dreams, visions of God. Uh, one thing, quantum mechanics stirs up trouble because... Computations are deterministic, and quantum mechanics seems to be fundamentally non-deterministic. Wolfram's answer is to say that quantum mechanics is wrong, and it's a waste of time. <laughs> and uh, I kind of like that. Uh, but uh, there could be a layer below quantum mechanics where it really is deterministic. Let's just leave it at that. Um, Okay, now the synthesis, we want to look at gnarly computations, and the idea is these are lifelike. Now, a good example to think about is free will. And uh, maybe for a second, let me just show you something so this will be a little more clear. This is, a, this is an example of a cellular automaton. And uh, what you're seeing here is a space-time picture and each row, in other words, this is earlier, this is later. Each new row, the new rows are being born at the bottom of the screen. Each new row is computed from the row before. And uh, it's totally deterministic. Now, one of the things that, if you watch this, it's deterministic, but although I know the rule, like the, the rule that's it's being used, essentially cellular automata, the way cellular automata work, is we're working here, the, the, computing, the computation is really just happening in this bottom row. And every pixel looks at its color, the color of the pixel to its left, the color of its pixel to its right, and it uses a little lookup table, and it says, well, if I'm red and there's a blue on my left and a yellow on my right, then I'll turn black. If I'm black, there's a blue on my left, a yellow on my right, then I'll turn green. So there's, there's this little list of about 20 little rules. So it's very kind of simple rule. And the start condition is basically whatever you put into that first row. But the, and so the idea is this is deterministic. But if I were to say, well, how soon am I going to get another like roof like that coming by here to the right? That's going to be really hard to predict. There's going to be sort of the only way you can predict what this is going to look like in five minutes, really, is to let the damn thing run for five minutes. It's sort of... There's, mathematics often has the power to take something and predict what's going to be happening later on, but there's other times that we know, things like the digits of pi. Uh, I don't, maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't think there's a quick way to predict the, you know, the billionth digit of pi. There is a formula for it, though. Uh, Borwein has one. So maybe that's not such a great example. Um, there are cases, though, this, this is probably a case where this is something where it's sort of, Wolfram uses the word, well, let's just suppose we call it an unpredictable computation. So it means I, can, I know the rule, I know what's in this row, but to predict, you know, when am I going to get another long, tall run like this, it's really all you can do is let it run. 
So these are the kinds of computations that, that I'm interested in. Now, um, what does this have to do with free will? Well, think of this as being your mind, okay? So let's seed it with something. Maybe we can give it a simple seed. I wonder if I seed it with one dot, what'll happen? Uh, wow, oh, okay. It's, uh, no, that won't work. Uh, well, I'll give it a fairly simple seed there. Oh, well, that's not, let me not get into playing with the computer too much. But think of this, suppose I stop it for a second, and uh, think of this, uh, okay, think of this bottom row, for instance, as being the state of mind that you're in, and you say, okay, I know, I feel like I have free will, and by that I mean I can't predict what I'm going to be thinking in an hour. But does that mean that I'm not deterministic? Well, not necessarily. It might just be that the computation of what I'm going to be like in an hour is complicated enough that it's not something I can compress. I can't get some sort of logarithmic speed up. Now, um, let me come back to the PowerPoint slide for an instant. Suppose uh, you have a gnarly AI life box that simulates a person. Now, the gnarly computation is deterministic, something like the CA, but a gnarly computations are unpredictable. Now, I'm using unpredictable in a certain kind of computer science-y sense of the word. We say a computation is predictable if you can find another computation that will predict the output but take a logarithmically shorter amount of time. So we want like a very serious speed-up. Now, there's one, a good example of a logarithmic speed-up is the use of... Uh, use of digits in your arithmetic. Like if I have to add, you know, two seven-digit numbers, and if I do it by counting on my fingers, it's going to take me, you know, 10 